This is The Channel, a podcast from the International Institute for Asian Studies. Welcome to The Channel. Today on the podcast, I'm joined by Soheb Niazi and Julianne Levesque for a conversation about Muslim caste organizations in India. Soheb Niazi is an historian who specializes in the social and economic history of modern India. He is particularly interested in studying the history of non-elite or non-Ashraf Muslim actors in South Asia to understand the formation of caste and class relations among them. He is currently a research fellow at the International Institute for Asian Studies. During his stay here in Leiden, he's working on a book manuscript tentatively titled Contesting Genealogies, Hierarchy and Social Mobility Among Muslim Occupational Classes in Colonial North India, 1870 to 1940. Julian Levesque is a political sociologist whose work focuses on socio-political dynamics in South Asian Muslim societies. His first monograph, published in French in 2022, looks into nationalism and identity construction in Pakistan with a focus on the southern Sindh province. Julian currently serves as a lecturer and postdoctoral fellow at the Institute of Asian and Oriental Studies at the University of Zurich in Switzerland. His ongoing work examines caste-based political mobilization among Muslims in India. In today's conversation, Julian and Soheb talk about their recent collaboration as guest editors of a special section in the journal Contemporary South Asia, entitled Caste, Politics, Minority Representation, and Social Mobility, The Associational Life of Muslim Caste in India. As guest editors, the two curated the collection and also co-authored its substantial introduction. In the following conversation, we discuss the topic of Muslim caste associations generally, and how these organizations reflect and contest political dynamics within the Muslim community, but also beyond into the broader Indian polity. Soheb and Julian, thank you so much for joining me on the channel. I'm excited to talk about this new special issue that you've just produced. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. Thank you, Ben. Thanks. So I'm sure that many of our listeners, or even most of them, will have some familiarity with the concept of caste in South Asia, at least broadly. But can you start by offering some background on Muslim occupational caste in India in particular? Right. So I think... Uh, one thing that's important to go back to is the very paradox of caste in a Muslim environment, right? So the, the obvious starting point, or if we start from what, you know, from general knowledge, that caste is generally understood as a Hindu phenomenon. And um, then in Islam, there is no ideological justification for caste in the foundational texts, uh, the Quran and the Hadith. So instead, the Quran stresses egalitarianism, the you know, brotherhood of believers, believers being judged according to their piety, not uh, their rank, status, power, or, or wealth. But in practice, of course, and from very early on, Muslim societies have had forms of stratification, often framed with 
reference to um, lineage. And so this led to the development of specific textual traditions around genealogy. And so here in the South Asian context, what the, the British colonial administrators and observers of Indian society noted was that Muslims also had um, social groups akin to castes. And so, of course, it, it uh, puzzles the British. Um, uh, they see caste as a fundamentally Hindu social institution um, justified by texts such as the Manu Smriti, you know, that was just uh, translated by William jo Jones in, in the late 18th century. And on the other hand, they see Islam as a fundamental egalitarian religion. And so any departure from, from this egalitarian ideal in Islam is understood as a corruption of, of the original Islam. And so in the 19th century, um, this tension between uh, hierarchical Hinduism and egalitarian Islam informs the way the British apprehend caste among Muslims. Um, and in, as you have uh, techniques of documentation about the Indian population that develop. Um, uh, so from what Susan Bailey called the early data gatherers to what Nicholas Dirks named the ethnographic state in the late 19th century. So you have systematic surveys that are put in place and eventually the decennial census. And so these state initiatives are, of course, informed and in their turn shape the way uh, caste among Muslims is understood. And so in the 19th century, you have, you know, you can trace several steps uh, historically in which uh, our uh, current understanding of, of Muslim caste is gradually shaped from uh, early texts in the early 19th century. For example, uh, Mirza Katil Haftamasha, uh, or later we have texts in, in English. Uh, in 1832, you have two texts, the Jafar Sharif, the Kanun Islam, or uh, Mrs. Mir Hassan Ali's uh, text. And these uh, adopt the perspective of the dominant group, dominant groups, or what are called the Ashraf. So the sort of the nobility or, um, and so these groups, we, what we see emerging is a fourfold division among, among the Ashraf. Um, and then later on, the, the British surveys develop a more um, all-encompassing kind of uh, census of these castes. And so they decenter from this Ashraf perspective and look into um, the occupational caste, right? So castes that are deemed to have converted from, from Hinduism. And so later on, so this basically leads to this distinction of the Ashraf and the Ajlaf, what sociologist Imtiaz Ahmed called the Ashraf-Ajlaf dichotomy, and which in many ways informs the, the current discussions and politics of Muslim caste today, today in India. Uh, but perhaps Soheb can add a few things to, to um, this notion of occupational caste. Sure. Uh, thank you, Juliet. As he mentioned, this distinction of Ashraf and Ajlaf, on the ground, this uh, the understanding of Muslim caste is incomplete without an understanding of Muslim occupational caste, which are known in Urdu, for instance, as the Peshevar Akwam, and include groups such as uh, Kasabs or butchers, Julahas or weavers, Mirasis, musicians, Nai or barbers, Teli, oil pressers, or uh, sanitation workers known as halal horse, and many other such groups. Uh, now, 
while colonial ethnographers and their surveys, as Julian has succinctly elaborated upon, tried to categorize and classify Muslims according to the various broad categories and tried to compare them to the fourfold division of the Hindu Varna system, it is interesting to understand the uh, sociological context of the occupational caste. In the 19th century, when many Islamic reform movements uh, were carrying forth a polemical debate on everyday customs and rituals and trying to deem certain rituals as un-Islamic or influenced by Hinduism, a question that arises in a researcher's mind is, uh, going through these kind of writings is, who are these discourses being addressed to? And often there we see that it is uh, much of these occupational groups such as Kasabs, butchers or weavers who are being addressed in a way. These groups, as uh, Julian had mentioned in the colonial surveys, were considered either as Ajlaf or Arzal, uh, that is those who were converted or those with indigenous origins and thus considered to be of lower status. However, in fact, these occupational groups socially organized themselves around biradris, broadly understood as kinship groups, and had their own forms of social and political organizations, locally known as panchayats, but from the 1920s and 30s, they formed jamiats or political associations, such as the All India Jamiatul Quraysh for the butchers and meat traders, or the Momin Conference in the case of weavers. So to get a complete picture of Muslim caste, it's essential to include these occupational classes among the Muslims. How do Muslim caste categories and their social implications differ from those in Hindu communities? As you both mentioned, and you sort of touched on this, um, Hindu caste categories are probably more widely known and understood beyond the subcontinent. So do they function similarly in Muslim groups, or are there sort of key differences in how they operate? Thank you, Ben. In fact, that is a very important question which has uh, preoccupied sociologists, anthropologists, and many researchers working on the concept of uh, Muslim caste. Uh, however, to begin with, I would say that caste as a defining principle of social organization, wherein endogamous descent-based status groups exist within a structural order of graded hierarchy, has very well been a feature of Muslim society in the Indian subcontinent. And now we have enough research and enough scholarship led initially by sociologists and anthropologists, which highlights the various hierarchical relationships that define and segregate different Muslims into Zats or Biradris with varied differences across specific region. However, traditionally, this understanding, as Julian initially mentioned, began from the colonial surveys, also the Islamic reformers, where there was always a comparison with Hindu caste, which continued to be dominant among sociologists and anthropologists. So in this understanding, there was some kind of diluted model of stratification, which had caste-like features. So scholars like Dumont and Leach emphasized that caste as an ethnographic category referred exclusively to a system of social organization peculiar to Hindu India. And thus, Muslim caste was always compared. One of the first works to bring out a wide range of regional case studies of Muslim caste was Imtiaz Ahmed's text, Caste and Social Stratification Among Muslims in India, 
which was first published in 1978, and then various editions came, the latest one in 2018. And broadly, the debates around that would point out that while there was occupational specialization among Muslims, similar to Hindu caste groups, there was also endogamic marriage practices that Muslim castes followed. However, they, they differed on the question of ritual purity and pollution. Uh, and the other point which already has been mentioned is that there was no scriptural evidence in the context of Muslims. However, Impiaz Ahmed himself highlighted the inadequacies of these kind of broader distinctions of Ashraf Ashlam distinction when it came to the context of Muslims, arguing that the correct an appropriate unit of analysis for caste society among Muslims was the unit of endogamy. Thus, the Ashraf, for instance, was merely a category and Sayyids or Sheikhs were subcategories within which several endogamic units such as Siddiqui Sheikhs would form an equivalent of caste. The term Sheikh, in fact, denoted several categories that are characteristically fluid such that socially mobile groups could forge associations with it. Can I step in, uh, Soheb? Yeah. All right. So just to, to add to what Soheb just said and perhaps summarize a bit, so the vision of, of Muslim caste and then and the critique that came of it and, and what we're trying to highlight is, so you have a series of colonial surveys from the mid-19th century to basically the mid-20th century. And what these surveys paint is a, is a broad picture of, of caste among Muslims um, that is based on this Ashraf-Ajlaf dichotomy. The Ashraf are meant or deemed to be descendants from foreign Muslims who came to the South Asian subcontinent. And they encompass four broad categories, uh, the Sayyid, Sheikh, Mughal, and Patan. Um, and then you have the Ajlaf, which are the occupational castes that Soheb was just talking about. And so these are castes for which you usually have an equivalent among Hindus, and they're occupational in the sense that they have a specific craft that they practice, or when they don't practice it, they're associated uh, with this particular craft or trade. So Soheb mentioned the butchers or the weavers or the vegetable sellers. These are, these are good examples. And so then you have a third category called the Arzal, which would be the equivalent of the Dalits, of the untouchable, um, so practicing occupations that are considered polluting. And so you have these three uh, uh, broad categories, again, the Ashraf, the Ajlaf, and the Azal. And so these broad categories, uh, in, in many ways, are similar to the Varna system in, in Hindu caste. And that's what... Um, uh, so he was referring to when he was mentioning that, um, you know, the Muslim caste has always been compared and it has always been judged against the benchmark in a way of, of Hindu castes uh, considered the only reference of caste. And, and that's why it's, it's a contested uh, notion, right? The very existence of Muslim caste is contested and maybe we'll get to, to that a bit later. But in that colonial picture, you also have the idea of, um, of a, a cultural and religious encounter with a very uh, schematic understandings of, of both Islam and Hinduism as fundamentally hierarchical or fundamentally egalitarian. 
And this idea of a, of a cultural encounter informs uh, much uh, later scholarship as well. Uh, so if we take, for instance, one of the major works post-independence, uh, the first major book on Muslim caste is a book called Muslim Caste in Uttar Pradesh, a study of culture contact by uh, Ros Ansari. And it has the merit of drawing attention to, to the issue of Muslim caste, but it does reproduce uh, these broad categories and in a very systematic way. And I, I personally uh, understand this work as a, as a, a synthesis of the, the long tradition of surveying that the, the colonial state had, had put in place. But I think one, one question also that we may ask is the extent to which asserting a caste identity for Muslims goes counter to asserting a Muslim identity. And that's a question that uh, many scholars have also sought to explore, perhaps not sufficiently, but um, so we have cases when people choose to consciously downplay or hide their being part to, of a particular uh, a caste group or lineage in order to project a broader, all-encompassing Muslim identity, right? It's, it's a political project to foster an, uh, a Muslim identity. And so, for instance, in the late 19th and 20th centuries, uh, you have the Sayyid identity, for instance. Uh, so the idea that people descend from Prophet Muhammad, uh, so groups claiming this prophetic lineage have tended to project a broader uh, either Ashraf identity and usually a broader Muslim identity. And so you have also examples of deliberate choice not to use specific titles or markers that indicate social status. So we may think uh, of the Salafis, for instance, um, who reject these uh, social markers, right? And then we may think of public figures that do not want to be particularly associated with a specific caste or specific social standing and, and, and prefer to project themselves as, as Muslims. And um, when various occupational caste groups among Muslims start mobilizing, first in the 1920s and, and later again in the, in the 90s under the Pasmanda uh, banner, they first, they often then put forward their caste identity. So a lot of these, um, for example, the publications of the occupational caste stress that you have to use this common new name that we're now using together. So the butchers started calling themselves Qureshi, and in the publications of the, the Qureshi organizations, they tell people to use that Qureshi term as a surname to identify publicly and collectively as Qureshi. And so this question of how do these combine so the caste identity along with the Muslim identity, um, it's not a, it's not a univocal phenomenon. Uh, scholars have also shown that caste identity and Muslim identity can, are not understood necessarily as contradictory by most South Asian Muslims. And for example, um, there's a, a fairly recent article by Carla Bellamy that, um, who, who writes about uh, strategies of upward mobility among a, a particular Muslim caste, the, the Chipa, which has Hindu and, and Muslim, uh, I mean, the Chipa divided between Hindus and Muslims. And it's a caste group that originally was associated with block printing. Uh, and here she, she looks at it in Western Madhya Pradesh, in, in central India. 
And she suggests that the, the tension between belonging to a marginalized Muslim caste and being Muslim uh, was not explicitly articulated by her interviewees, but uh, she talks about being Muslim the cheaper way, right? So for, for them, it's, it's not asserting a cheaper identity, a caste identity is not a rejection of their Muslimness in any way. Just to add uh, a couple of points here. So in a way, what our current research and some of uh, the research that Julian mentions uh, has kind of directed us towards is that to overcome this problem of overemphasis with the Hindu model uh, of caste, one thing that is kind of important is to historicize and go back to either vernacular languages, like for instance, Urdu, but also to look, try and trace voices of the occupational caste. So looking at community histories of the Qureshis or the Ansaris. And there then we see that they have their own kind of debates or, uh, which refer to an early Islamic history and practices which often are diverse. And then there is no need to always compare to the Hindu system. Yeah, this question of self-identification and the politics of that kind of self-identification, whether or not or to what extent it mutually excludes other forms of self-identification, brings us pretty directly into your intervention into these debates and this ongoing work, which is this special issue, which began as a conference panel at the 2022 Conference of the British Association of South Asian Studies. Can you just talk a little bit about how that initial panel and the special issue came together? Were you and your co-panelists familiar with each other's work before, or did you come around kind of ad hoc around this issue? So Eb and I first met as part of a conference panel that I organized in 2018, um, so at the European Conference of South Asian Studies in Paris. And the panel was on Sayyid, so Muslims claiming descent from Prophet Muhammad, so Sayyid in South Asia. And it led to the publication of a special issue in the, the Journal of the Royal Asiatic Society in, in, in 2020. And we've been in touch since then, um, particularly through a, an informal reading group that we have with a few colleagues and, and friends where we discuss uh, recent publications on, on South Asian Islam. And so then, uh, well, actually, Soheb uh, suggested that we put together a panel, and, and that's how we, we wrote a proposal for the, the BASAS uh, conference, the British Association of South Asian Studies conference. Uh, then we circulated a, a call for papers, and actually, um, so we knew some of the, the participants, but not all of them. Yes, as Julian said, we, uh, I was part of one of the uh, panels that they organized on Sayyids. And my own work quite uh, resonated with what Julian was doing and a bunch of other people were researching at that time. My own work on the Sayyids of Amroha, which is a North Indian Kasba town, followed this polemical debate in the Urdu public sphere between Sayyids and uh, butchers on genealogy and descent. And through those conversations from that panel and that special issue, uh, and as Julian mentioned, this reading group on South Asian Islam that we had, we came to this idea that there was a need to have a special issue on caste among Muslims. Uh, so we organized this panel, which attracted several scholars and contributors, which included 
case studies of many Muslim caste associations, uh, which had not been researched. Uh, there were all kinds of diverse papers on coffee plantations in the Western Ghats, sanitation workers in Kashmir, vegetable sellers in UP. But eventually we decided to narrow down the focus on Muslim caste associations as several papers were addressing this theme. And it seemed to us that this would be a new intervention in the study of Muslim caste. So this ultimately led to a special issue of contemporary South Asia, which is sort of the occasion for us talking today. And in the introduction to that special issue, you start by discussing some of the factors that have led scholars to pay more attention to the issue of Muslim caste associations recently. The first one that you mention is internal to the Muslim community. Specifically, you talk about the 1980 Mandal Commission report and how it spurred a critique leveled by marginalized castes called pasmanda against dominant groups. Can you unpack that history for those of us less familiar with this? What was the report and how did it transform the internal politics of Muslims in India with respect to caste? So yes, the Mandal Commission report was completed in 1980 and eventually implemented in 1992. This called for quotas and reservations for other backward classes or OBCs as they are known. Uh, this was not uh, solely internal to Muslims, but also uh, this was relevant to also Hindu castes and in fact led to a rise of uh, various kind of associations, both Hindu and Muslim. In the context of uh, Muslims, this led to a lot of debates on reservations among Muslims, whether these reservations should be for backward castes among Muslims or for the whole community of Muslims as a minority. And these debates kind of led to the formation of several groups and associations. One of the most famous ones is the Pasmanda Muslim Mahas, which was founded in 1998 by someone called Anwar Ali. Anwar Ali also later wrote this text in Hindi called the Masawat Ki Jang or the Battle for Equality, which became kind of a seminal text for activists and other groups. Uh, this term Pasmanda was coined by Anwar Ali and uh, the Pasmanda Muslim Mahas to talk of Muslims, those who were left behind or those who are considered backward. Uh, similarly, uh, this spurred on debates and brought out several texts. So Masood Ahmad Falai, one scholar, wrote this text in Urdu uh, called Hindustan Me Zadpat or Islam, Caste and Caste-Based Discrimination Among Indian Muslims. Uh, this was published in 2007. It brought out a uh, lot of cases and empirical evidence of uh, caste-based discrimination. Similarly, several reports were subsequently published. And one of them was this report prepared for the National Commission for Minorities for the Government of India by Satish Deshpande in 2008, which was called Dalits in the Muslim and Christian Community, a status report on current social scientific knowledge. Uh, and for me personally, uh, something that also spurred a lot of discussions in the university itself when I was doing my undergrad in Delhi uh, was, for instance, the OBC or the other backward caste reservations in higher education universities, which was implemented in 2006. And then as a result, we saw that the university space in India uh, became far more democratic. It included people from 
all kinds of marginalized groups and among us when we were at the university many many diverse uh, muslim social groups would question the idea of the normative understanding of islam that we were studying in our texts and readings and they would bring their own experiences to the university and argue or challenge some of the understandings of a homogeneous islam so i think all of these trends together brought about a lot of transformations in the university and allowed some of these discourses to take place yeah i think the question of the transformation of the indian states position towards muslim caste is is really interesting if you follow from the days right after independence to to the current debates today you know after independence you have the for several years the the constitutional assembly debates right that frame the constitutional framework and the the system of preferential quotas or or refer, um, reservations as it's called in india um that that are um granted to specific uh, marginalized groups not because of their socioeconomic status but because of their historical uh marginalized position and so right after independence the the constitutional debates lead to the end of separate electorates separate electorates where the the principle according to which people of a specific religious co- community would vote for representatives of the same community and it was so it was a demand of the muslim league from the early 20th century that was granted by the by the colonial state in 1909 and it remained until independence um and so after independence the the, the indian state does away with the separate electorates so muslims cannot elect muslims uh, anymore and instead the state puts in place a secular framework uh with specific minority rights among which you have uh, a separate legal framework for personal law right so you have a system of muslim personal law when it comes to to muslims that for matters of inheritance marriage divorce and so on so while you have on the one hand uh, specific guarantees or, or or safeguards for minorities under a secular framework on the other hand uh, the indian state puts an end to separate electorates and then puts in place uh, a system of preferential quotas for um what it calls uh, scheduled castes or scheduled castes so the the castes that are listed in a particular uh, uh, schedule and uh, at the time of independence religious minorities are excluded from this sc status in 1950 the presidential uh, there's a presidential order that uh, that comes in complement to to the constitution and uh that restates this idea that you cannot benefit from the safeguards given to sc to scheduled caste if uh, you are not a hindu uh, gradually this the sc status was extended to the sikhs in in 1956 and later to the buddhist in 1990 but what this does is that it excludes muslims including muslims who you know may uh be engaged in occupations that are deemed uh, polluting and therefore discriminated against because of their uh, professional occupation while they they are excluded from the benefits that their hindu counterparts get 
Um, and so you, what you have, and also it needs to be kept in mind that these um, the SC, the stator cast, they, they, they concern a very um, small, rather small percentage of the Indian population as a whole. And so you have then uh, a movement for the extension of quotas to more intermediary castes. So that's why you have the backward classes commissions. You have the first backward class commission in the mid-50s, the Kaka Kalilkar Commission. And later on, uh, the Mandal Commission that um, so I talked about. And these two commissions, they produce reports that include specific Muslim caste groups in their lists and say, well, you know, these also should be included in the, in the quotas. Uh, there's no reason to, to exclude them. But the, the central state does not act on these two reports. The Kaka Kalilkar Commission is, is basically set aside. And later on, of course, the the, the Mandel Commission report is eventually put in place, but it takes more than 10 years for, for the state to do, that, to do that. And so what happens as a result is that it's not at the central level, but it's at the state level that um, the governments uh, decide to extend quotas to these intermediary castes or, or backward classes. And so that happens in Bihar, in Karnataka, in Kerala for, from the 70s onwards. And very often what happens is that these um, state-level backward classes commissions and the laws that are then implemented do include uh, Muslim caste groups as part of these, um, of these quotas. And so that's how um, Muslims uh, gradually get included in the OBC category or these other backward classes category. And so just um, a, a small point uh, as well. And so in reaction to then these state initiatives and due to these various reports, emerges a collective mobilization in the 90s that uh, Sohead just um, very well summed up and with key um, written interventions, right, by Ali Anwar, by Masoud Alam Falahi, for instance. One of the interesting aspects of this mobilization that our special issue throws light on is the process of aggregation of caste-based demands into broader political demands. And it's, it's important to understand the distinction between single caste organizations and caste federations. So single caste associations aim to organize a single caste group and, and represent its interests. And they're first and foremost local organizations, but then from the early 20th century on, they, they also emerge at the state level and at the pan-Indian level and um, uh, they may link together numerous local organizations, but all representing uh, the same caste group. So among Muslims, you, the, the organizations that we've already mentioned, you know, fit uh, that bill. Um, for example, the uh, Jamiatul Quraysh for the, the butchers, the Qureshis, the Momin Conference for the Ansaris, or the Jamiatul Rain for the, the Rains, the vegetable sellers. Uh, so in the, in the wake of the Mandal Commission reports, which was uh, so completed in 1980, but implemented in the early 90s, the numerous single caste associations were established to demand the inclusion of, of their group into the lists of intermediary caste, in, the, in this OBC list, uh, that were now to benefit from the preferential quotas. And so these include Muslim caste groups. For instance, uh, in the, in the Simanchal region, so in Northeast Bihar, you have a Shersha Abadi Association set up in the early 80s with the primary objective to ensure the inclusion of this particular group, the Shersha Abadi, in the OBC list. And the association, although it still exists, 
has remained somewhat not very active since since the 90s when actually reservations were granted to to this group. And so these single caste organizations then are, are different from caste federations. That, that's a term proposed by uh, Rajni Kothari, uh, a very famous uh, political scientist in, in India in the, in the 60s. Um, and here in caste federations, you see different single caste associations coming together on a common platform to pool you know, resources, but also more importantly, to voice collective political demands. And this is what happens uh, among Muslims from the 90s onwards with the Pasmanda label. So the Pasmanda was not the only term proposed then. Pasmanda was proposed by Ali Anwar, but you also had other terms like Dalit Muslims proposed by another veteran leader, Ejaz Ali. And, uh, but what, what the term that really stuck in the public debate is Pasmanda, uh, to the extent that it's now being used more widely. And uh, uh, we might talk about this in a few minutes, but by political parties, including the party in, in currently in power, the BJP. And so in the special issue, uh, uh, most of the articles focus on, on single caste associations, but some of them talk about this process of aggregation uh, into, into larger platforms. In particular, Shirin Azam's piece precisely reflects on, on the aggregation of these interests of different Muslim caste groups under the Pasmanda banner. So what does what does the Pasmanda term, the Pasmanda banner allow? What does it enable in terms of collective mobilization? What possibilities does it offer? But also what, what limitations does the, does the term uh, face? What are the problems that different uh, caste groups face? What are the disagreements that they have when they try to come together on a single platform? Yeah, so if the first issue is this kind of rising mobilization around the category of caste for all these reasons you both have just outlined very well, and thank you for that, the second issue that's brought attention to Muslim caste, according to your introduction for the special issue, concerns this other dimension that, Julian, you briefly mentioned just now, which is sort of larger political shifts in India, and specifically the rise of Hindutva politics, a kind of religious nationalist project famously exemplified by the BJP party, which assumed power in 2014. The effects of this shift are multiple and sometimes counterintuitive, or at least they were to me a bit. And you write in your introduction, quote, on the one hand, religious polarization and the vulnerability of minorities reinforces the claims of those who seek to consolidate Muslim political unity. So, end quote, in other words, one effect was to paper over or to discourage critical discussions of inequality within Muslim communities. But you go on later to say, quote, on the other hand, the rise to power of the BJP has also opened new opportunities for some, as the BJP seeks to exploit intra-Muslim divisions as part of its political strategy, end quote. Can you untangle some of this for me? How do you think about the very complex politics at play here when it comes to the effect of right-wing Hindutva movements and politics in contemporary India? So since 2022 in particular, the BJP, the Bharatiya Janta Party, which is in power since 2014, um, has sought to visibly woo the Pasmanda Muslims. It's been visible in, in, in speeches, right, with mentions in speeches. For example, uh, in July 22, and it's something we've referred to in the, in the introduction, uh, so Narendra Modi, the Prime Minister, gave a speech in Hyderabad 
uh, in a, a BJP executive meeting in which he, he mentioned the Pasmanda. What's also interesting is that there is actual, there's no actual recording of this, uh, there's only report, but it did spark a lot of debate then in, in, in July 22. Uh, with a lot of journalists, you know, stepping in and trying to explain what the Pasmanda term was all about, uh, as it was largely unknown in you know, the public sphere in India. And basically, you see the media outlets, um, you know, coming in to, to show that there is a form of, of caste-based politics among Muslims. Another mention uh, was uh, as more recent, for instance, in in. So on Independence Day, on uh, August 15th, 2023, Narendra Modi also mentioned the Pasmanda in his uh, speech. And it, it is true that many Pasmanda activists uh, appreciate these, these gestures. Uh, they really uh, see it as a form of, of recognition. And so along with these speeches, there have been electoral initiatives by, by the BJP to, to use the, the, the Pasmanda in, in their campaigns, um, most notably the UP election campaign in Uttar Pradesh 2022. Uh, the BJP campaign, I mean, its focus on the Pasmanda Muslims has arguably helped it win in specific constituencies. But what was very visible to all was that after the new government came into power in, in UP, the party appointed uh, Danish Ansari, so um, an Ansari man, uh, who has been associated with the PGP for some time uh, as minority, as a minister of minority welfare in, in the UP government. And he's the sole Muslim minister there. So it's also a sign that the sole Muslim uh, minister in the UP government is uh, a Pasmanda uh, minister. Uh, but more broadly, what the BJP has sought to do is to, to portray key points in its agenda as beneficial to the Pasmanda Muslims. For instance, uh, the question of the UCC or the Uniform Civil Code. Um, so the BJP has historically been opposed to one of the key aspects of Indian secularism, which is these safeguards that are offered to religious minorities. So the fact that Muslims and Christians have their own personal law is, is, is a problem in this view. And so the BJP has always supported the idea of the uniform civil code, there, there should be no uh, differences among religious, across religious uh, groups when it comes to, to, these, to the legal framework that they operate in, or that their marriages and, and inheritance procedures and so on operate in. Um, and the overall logic here is that the uh, Muslim elites, so the Ashraf Muslims, who have traditionally uh, worked in tandem with the Congress Party since the early 20s with groups like the Jamiatul Ulema-i Hint, for instance, uh, but there are other organizations. We could, we could mention some scholars have spoken of the Grand Alliance of Muslim Organizations. Yeah, Muhammad Sajjad, an historian, has, has coined that term, but this Grand Alliance of Muslim Organizations that has historically worked with the Congress party to, to put in place this very system of Indian uh, secularism and, and with particular protections for minorities, including Muslim personal law. So these Muslim elites have kept uh, the community backward uh, overall. So Muslims are kept backward by their own religious and political elites. And here the government, the BJP-led 
governments, its responsibility is to free them from the domination of their own elites. And in that sense, that's how they're using the, the Pasmanda critique of Ashraf domination uh, can be used by, by the BJP in this sense. So the, the BJP Pasmanda Alliance putting an end to uh, Congress Ashraf Alliance. That would be kind of the, the framework that drives uh, uh, the policy towards, uh, towards the Pasmanda Muslims today. Yeah, just to add to that, as a historian and not as someone as an expert of contemporary politics, I think this current attempt of the right-wing Hindutva politics to exploit intra-Muslim divisions as part of its political strategy signals an important shift with the idea of foreign origins of Muslims. So in colonial India, in the early 20th century, we saw that there was a kind of pride in Arab descent or uh, among the Ashraf, which were known to have come from abroad, whether the Arab world or the larger Central Asian geographies. And we saw that upwardly mobile groups such as butchers and weavers then also tried to take up this descent of Quraysh and these lineages from uh, the Prophet's tribe. Now, of course, post Mandal Commission, post quotas and reservations that we talked about, and now this current emphasis of uh, the BJP to woo Pasmanda Muslims, I think this would mean very big implications for this idea of how Muslims in general, but also Pasmanda Muslims, identify and claim this kind of origin or uh, what kind of past do they claim for themselves. Currently, of course, we see that to call Mus uh, even, uh, for instance, uh, post the Citizenship Amendment Act and such uh, new legislation, we see that there is a discomfort among Muslims to identify a foreign past. Uh, and this, I would think, would mean in the future a very different kind of understanding and politics uh, that would emerge among uh, Muslim Pasmanda groups, for instance. If I may just uh, add a couple of words to what Soheb said, I think this point is a, is a very important one. Um, in the in also in the BJP RSS uh, point of view, they make a very clear distinction between the foreign Muslims or Muslims of foreign origin and and Muslims who have converted, and those who have converted are, are understood as being closer to Hindus, they understood as being part of the broader Hindu civilizational framework, and uh, but to be eventually uh, 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 redeemed or recovered and, and re-included in the Hindu fold, right? This idea of Garbapasi, coming home, and that they're uh, looking for people to reconvert to to Hinduism. And also, the way um, they would approach Muslim religiosity is, is also uh, understood in that binary of, of foreign and, and Indian. So, for instance, South Asian Muslim religiosity is often described as largely centered on Sufi mausoleums or mausoleums of Sufi saints with various devotional practices of, of, of uh, prayer, but also of um, for example, um, lighting uh, agarbati, so uh, incense sticks, 
and tying threads uh, on, on the tomb and so on. And th these are uh, sometimes understood as you know, remnants of a Hindu past and as proofs that these are actually Indian Muslims and um, they should uh, eventually uh, uh, reconvert or they can be part of, of the Hindu fold. But uh, a more reformist Islam that would reject these, these practices as not being proper Islam then is more problematic uh, from a BJP RSS, RSS point of view. So this form of, of religiosity, reformist religiosity, tends to be associated not with India, but with the Arabian Peninsula. Even though many, of refor many reformist groups are actually in the indigenous to the, to the subcontinent. One thing you make clear is that you're studying caste associations, not the more general and more slippery idea of caste itself. Why do you choose to make this distinction so prominently in the special issue? And why is it useful, do you think, to focus on caste organizations rather than caste per se in the Muslim community? So the study of caste among Muslims has been kind of mired in an intellectual impasse uh, around the question of, of the very uh, existence of caste among Muslims. So schematically, one side would argue that caste existed among Muslims, so suggesting that the, the, the essential principle uh, organizing Indian society across religious groups was caste, right? So this group says, okay, there is caste among Muslims. It's legitimate to use the, the term caste to describe social stratifications among Muslims in South Asia because we find the basic characteristics of caste, you know, endogamous marriages, uh, occupational specialization, hierarchical differences between groups, and also uh, certain ideas of, um, uh, of ranking with uh, certain activities being deemed polluting, others not, and so on. And so scholar, scholars working along this, this line included Imtiaz Ahmed, uh, that uh, so already uh, referred to, but we can also mention, for instance, Marc Gaborio, a French uh, anthropologist. And the logical extension of this view is that the concept of caste is understood as a social structure that can exist in different societies, and it's not rooted in a particular religious or cultural worldview or justification or environment. And so we see other uses of the term caste for other contexts. For instance, the anthropologist uh, Frederick Barth in the Pashtun region, but we can also think of Gerald Berriman, who uses it in India and the US. And we have this, uh, a very interesting reflections and uses of the term caste. But for others who put forward a cultural religious definition of caste, um, then you cannot understand Muslim social stratification as, as caste. And here there's the, the French anthropologist Louis Dumont, uh, who was a proponent of, of this view, and he conceded that at best Muslims could be corrupted by the caste worldview, but certainly not have a caste system because they didn't have Brahmins at the top. And if you don't have somebody at the top of the hierarchy, you, you don't have the reference that defines uh, the logic of purity and pollution. And so Dumont's theory has been criticized for, for reproducing precisely a Brahminical view of caste. Uh, exposing classical texts such as the Manuspriti. And if you look at uh, uh, so people working along this line, for example, T.N. Madan, 
uh, in his work on social stratification among Kashmiri Muslims, he doesn't use the term caste. Although, arguably, what he describes in terms of um, intergroup relations are, are very similar to what others have described in, in different contexts in the subcontinent and using the term caste. And one of the key problems for scholars studying Muslim caste is that many Muslims also reproduce this view, right? So many Muslims also argue that there is no caste in Islam because there is no caste in the foundational text of Islam. And it's a, of course, it's a problem for any social scientist to study a social phenomenon whose existence the actors themselves deny. We cannot entirely reject the emic point of view. And so that's why um, the, the idea, our intervention, and the focus on caste association, we, we aim to bring the study of, of caste among Muslims to extract it from, from, this, from this dilemma. And we think that uh, studying or fo focusing on, on caste associations is a good way to do this. More broadly, there has been a renewed interest for Muslim caste. So since the, the Pasmanda uh, movement in the 90s and, and very recently with the, the BJP's new strategy towards the Pasmanda, um, but what the, the Pasmanda critique did um, is to make the scholarly debate sort of irrelevant. Political mobilization on the basis of caste discrimination among Muslims, this very political mobilization did not engage with the question of whether caste existed or not among Muslims, right? They said, yeah, we're the victims of caste discrimination, we're Muslims, and we're the victim of caste discrimination. On this very basis, we choose to collectively mobilize and we want to change uh, this. We want to put an end to this caste discrimination. And so here we have an emic perspective that confirms the existence of Muslim caste. Then scholars have suggested that we should look at Muslim social stratification in Muslims' own terms. And so here we have a range of terms that are used by, by Muslims, biradrizat, uh, but we can think also of the term khandan that has been highlighted by, by Sylvia Vatuk. And here we think that associations constitute a very fruitful object of study because they help us move beyond some of these conceptual and methodological uh, limitations. Uh, it helps us possibly set aside the comparison with Hindu, Varna, and Jati, and it provides a very tangible object for empirical study. Um, most of these caste associations have a, a, a legal existence. They are also registered, they have proper meetings, they have uh, possibly you know, lists of members, they have websites, and so all these elements are, are useful for scholars to circumvent the objection made by many Muslims themselves uh, about the non-existence of, of Muslim caste. And associations provide a great uh, vantage point uh, to look into the, the transformations of, of Muslim caste because, they, because of the range of activities they, they engage into, from managing marriages, managing collective religious events, providing, you know, scholarships for study, but also possibly excluding uh, people, engaging with collective solidarity when it comes to the occupation that these various castes are active in. Um, and finally, I think associations are absolutely essential to understanding the state's relation to, to Muslim caste groups. And we've already mentioned uh, how these organizations were instrumental in, in making demands for, uh, for reservations. Thank you, Julian. Uh, you've very well answered this question on why we chose to uh, study caste associations. 
and why this focus on uh, associations. Here, I would just like to maybe uh, uh, mention uh, Joe Lee's contribution to our special issue, which uh, is kind of a response to the questions we have raised in the form of an afterword, which is titled Questions for the Study of Muslim Caste and Anti-Caste Islam. In the way he describes the collection of essays, it basically deals with three main questions. The first, which Julian has already mentioned, that it provides moving away from the debate whether caste exists among Muslims or not, directing us to evidentiary grounds from which substantive claims can be made and enabling the field to move forward. Secondly, these essays develop a far more differentiated account of the strategies of social mobility adopted by disadvantaged Muslim caste groups than that conjured by the concept of ashrafization. And I can talk more about this uh, subsequently. And a third way is uh, by attending to the complexity of the politics of double minoritization. Uh, that is to attend to the multiple contradictions within which non-Ashraf Muslims are compelled to contend as members of both a religious minority, but also of a stigmatized caste. That brings us back to this issue of self-identification vis-a-vis questions of social mobility and minority representation. What is the role of caste associations with respect to these dynamics particularly? Both of you mentioned it a little bit in your previous answer, but I wonder if you could expand a little bit on that. So yes, thank you for that question. Uh, social mobility, or as it is sometimes in the Muslim context known as ashrafization, as a process is quite central to the understanding of Muslim caste. Uh, several groups which were upwardly mobile, such as butchers or weavers, experience social mobility and then the politics of their organizations is kind of uh, centered around these, uh, around this upward mobility. The term ashrafization was uh, coined by a Dutch uh, scholar, De Stoyers, who worked on Parda among women in North India. This was a work that came out in the 60s, where she described the process of ashrafization as akin to the process of Sanskritization, which is something that M.N. Srinivas talked about in the context of Hindu caste. Destoyers described the attempts at social climbing by groups or individuals through hypergamy and adopting the way of life of higher classes as ashrafization. However, when we actually examine uh, some of the case studies of these caste associations that we study, we come to learn that the process of ashrafization is far more complicated. It is not merely mimicking uh, the ashraf or trying to become the ashraf, but as some contributions in our special issue have also mentioned, I can think of Gayatri Rathor's contribution, that there is also a simultaneous process of de-ashrafization, for instance. So at one level, while we see that several groups take up ashraf surnames or lineages in the form of a sheikh status or a Quraysh status, we see that they form endogamous uh, marriage alliances. They have certain notions of piety, which are drawn from Islamic reformers. And they kind of uh, take up certain critiques of customs related to marriage, such as the abolition of dowry. 
And these broad set of strategies deployed by socially mobile groups could come under this term of ashrafization. But simultaneously, uh, when we specially focus on their own caste associations, uh, we see that uh, there is also emphasis on pesha or occupation, that is specific occupations by specific biradri groups, which they emphasize over lineage or genealogy. These groups also have their own caste panchayats or their own form of political organization, which is very contrary to the form of organization that Ashraf groups had. Thirdly, they emphasize on the principle of masawat or egalitarianism as the basis of Islam, contrary to all the Ashraf discussions on lineage and descent. And lastly, many of these groups come out with their own community histories where they draw either genealogies contrary to what the Ashraf uh, or Sayyid uh, actors are drawing or they come up with parallel narratives about uh, the history of their community which are focused on their occupation but also are contesting and challenging a kind of stigmatized understanding of their occupational identity. In the course of our conversation, we've heard a little bit about some of the contributions to the special issue you two put together, but I wonder if you could just maybe highlight some of the work that went into this. Can you introduce the work of your colleagues and what you think it adds to the special collection that you edited? What do they have to say about these questions we've been talking about? One interesting aspect of the special issue is to, to question the very notion, the very definition of caste associations. And uh, two articles in particular do this very well. Um, the article by Hafsa Said Shah and uh, the article by Gayatri Rator. In, in both uh, cases, caste associations uh, take the form of a labor union because they, they cater to groups that are um, specialized uh, occupationally. And so this is also the case, by the way, of... of um, I mean, the Therain's uh, that Azim Ahmed talks about are also, you know, of course, occupationally specialized and their activity centers around the wholesale market in the ta town of Pratapgarh that he, that he uh, studies. But it's uh, also the case, it's, but the, the form, the labor union form that the caste association takes, or rather we may ask the question whether a labor union can be understood as a caste association. Uh, and, and that, that is what, what the two articles by Hafsa uh, Shah and Gayatri Rathor uh, invite us to think about. Uh, Hafsa uh, focuses on the Sheikh sanitation workers in the city of Srinagar, the, the capital of Kashmir. And um, Gayatri uh, Rathor uh, works on the Bishti uh, in, in Jaipur. Um, Hafsa documents the activities of two organizations in, in Srinagar. One is the labor union of the sanitation workers of the uh, Srinagar Municipal Corporation. So uh, virtually all, all employees, all sanitation workers uh, at the Srinagar Municipal Corporation come from the Sheikh caste. The other organization that she looks at is the old Jammu and Kashmir Pasmanda Tapkajat Federation. And this is an organization which precisely seeks to bring together 
various marginalized Muslim caste groups onto a single platform. Hafsa Shah argues that the, the share sanitation workers were able to develop a politics of dignity focused on work-related issues, so better living conditions, uh, fair minimum wages, the regular, regularization of daily wage workers, um, the provision of you know, winter uniforms, cleaning equipment, and so on. And so that this politics of, of dignity, according to, to her, allowed them to challenge the, the exclusion that they were facing. And the very introduction of the article brings uh, a, a, um, a couple of examples, you know, where people say, well, we used to be treated in a certain way, but now nobody would dare to do it in a similar way. Um, so there's a whole symbolic aspect as well to this uh, search for dignity that involves, for instance, uh, name change. So from Vatpal to Sheikh, perhaps something we could interpret as Ashrafization. The, the article also very interestingly highlights the tension between, on the one hand, wanting to keep as a community exclusive rights over sanitation jobs, so the, the share, you know, because it's a source of stable income for the share as a, as a community. But on the other hand, you have an ambition to move out of this activity, uh, not so much because of, of um, not because the people themselves uh, find it demeaning, but because of the, the, the way others look at it and because of the labor it requires as well. And so, hence a focus on, on education as well as a way of, of moving away from, from this occupation. Gayatri Rathor uh, looks at the Muslim Bishtis in Jaipur, Rajasthan's capital. And so the, the Bishtis are a group associated with the provision of water, so the water carriers historically, but today they're mainly employed as sanitation workers in the municipal corporation as well. And um, two interesting aspects of the article that we may highlight. One is the, the notion of de-ashrafization that the author proposes. So I had just mentioned that you know, the process of ashrafization is not a, a linear process um, and it's, it's, it can work in, in different ways. And so I think here the article really adds complexity to that, to that dimension and by proposing the notion of de-ashrafization which is uh, what Gayatri at all draws attention to is the dispensing of this particular caste group of the Muslim Bishtis from upper caste Muslims in their, um, in their public identity, right? So you have a dual process. On the one hand, you have um, the assertion of, a, of a caste dignity, and this involved from the 70s asserting collective dignity through Islamization in order to elevate collective social status. And here, it fits into the Ashrafization framework, uh, with Bishtis calling themselves the Sheikh Abbasi. And in 73, they, they set up an organization called the Sheikh Jamiatul Abbas Society. But in the 90s, they started to, to disengage with any possible Ashraf association in order to obtain OBC reservations in the context of increasing unemployment within the community. And it's very interesting to see how the name of a new organization that was set up in the 90s reflects this, this change. Because in 94, uh, the Muslim Bishtis uh, set up an organization called the Rajasthan Bishtis Samaj Sudar Samiti. And so from an organization in the 70s that had um, a very uh, Urdu-sounding terms, uh, Jamia Cher drawing 
of uh, I mean coming Arabic terms terms that come from Arabic. In the in the 90s, the the new organization that is uh, established uh, has a name that draws on on Sanskrit and Hindi. There's one more aspect that is quite interesting in this article, and it's the division of the bishtis along or, or the of the sanitation workers along Hindu and Muslim lines. The Muslim bishtis established a union for sanitation workers, different from that of the Hindu Valmiki, the Dalit group that is also engaged in sanitation work for the Jaipur Municipal Corporation. And so here we see a form of competition between two Dalit groups over one particular type of uh, government employment. And uh, we see how this competition through associations becomes the indirect instrument of religious distinction. I'll uh, briefly summarize two other contributions to the special issue, which are by Azim Ahmed and Shiri Nazam. Uh, both of them speak to the previous two papers that Julian summarized, but also to the overall aims of the special issue in trying to focus on single caste-based uh, biradri associations. Azim Ahmed's paper is... Uh, on the social mobility and politicization of caste among rinds or vegetable sellers of uh, Uttar Pradesh. And uh, Shireen Azam's paper is on the political life of Muslim caste and articulations and frictions within a Pasmanda identity. Uh, both papers are based on uh, very good ethnographic fieldwork in the state of UP. Uh, Azim Ahmed uh, looks at the rinds in Pratapgarh and Shirin Azam uh, examines different caste groups such as the Nanpus, the Halal Khor, and the Shahs who come under the broader banner of the Pasmanda Adhikar Manch. Azim Ahmed very nicely uh, shows the different layers of organization within a single caste Biradri association that is of the Rhine vegetable sellers. And he shows that the organization operates at three different levels. So at one local level, there is uh, the caste panchayat, which relies on the traditional authority of the chaudhary or the uh, head of the panchayat to regulate internal affairs of the biradri member. At a higher level is the caste association or the All India Jamitur Rain that he studies. And at the third level, there is a a foundation that is the Jamitur uh, Rain Foundation, which tries to also attract members outside the Biradri. Would you like me to speak about uh, Shirin's piece, or yeah, maybe? Um, Shirin Azam's uh, contribution to the special issue is extremely interesting, precisely because it looks at this process of aggregation of multiple interests of various single caste groups into a common platform. And she looks at a particular organization, the Pasmanda Adhikar Manch, uh, in the town of, or the city of Varanasi, in eastern Uttar Pradesh. It's an organization that was set up in January 2022, so ahead of the UP elections, and it was very clearly a political organization that 
aimed at voicing the the concerns of um, of various Pasmanda Muslim Muslim groups. And what is very interesting in this article is the difficulties that these groups face in coming together. And here Shirin Azam highlights this, these difficulties very well with um, uh, relations of, of suspicion uh, between uh, different groups with especially uh, more marginalized, smaller caste groups among Muslims seeing this new organization as basically an Ansari organization, right? So an organization that would be domi dominated by the Ansari uh, caste group, the, the weavers that are numerically very important in, in North India, but also historically very well organized since, um, you know, one of the major uh, uh, Muslim Pasmanda organizations that uh, um, was... Um, was created in the 1920s uh, was the, the Momin Conference. Um, and so what uh, Shirin Azam draws attention to uh, here is really these, these difficulties that it's not, um, it's not sufficient to say that we are all Basmanda Muslims in order to create effective solidarity that would transform into a political weight. Okay, so then I'll, I'll move to my piece. Uh, my article is slightly different in the sense that, unlike all the other contributions, I focus on dominant caste groups. And here I compare uh, three Sayed organizations in different uh, contexts. One is the southern Sindh region uh, in Pakistan. Um, the other is, broadly speaking, uh, North India. And the third environment is the state of Kerala in, in South India. Uh, it's actually interesting that in these three contexts, uh, we have organizations that claim to represent um, Sayyid, so people who claim descent from, from the Prophet. Um, but it's, it's, it's great to be able to compare them to see what kind of group they actually cater to. On the one hand, in Sindh, the um, Sindh Sayed Association is actually an ethnic organization. It's, it's a caste organization in a way, so it caters to Sayeds, but it's actually Sindhi-speaking Sayeds. So the Sayeds who came from various parts of India at the time and after partition, who are Urdu-speaking, are not part of this organization. And so here the ethnic line, uh, in a way, trumps the, the lineage or the caste line. In North India, I look at an organization called the Anjuman Vazifai Sadat Mominin, which is actually a Shia organization set up in 1912. So it's a very old organization and it provides scholarships. So it has pretty much this single, it's a single purpose organization, if you will, of uh, providing scholarships to members of what they call the community. And the tension here is whether the community are the Sayyids, the descendants of the Prophet, or whether they are the Shia Muslims. And, you know, historically, uh, if you look at the activities of the organizations, overwhelmingly, the members and the beneficiaries from scholarships have been uh, Sayyid, Shia Sayyids. Uh, so not Sayyids in general, 
no, it's Shia Muslims in general, but mainly uh, Shia Sayyids. In Kerala, it's a different context because we have a Jamiat, um, but actually they use an English term, an association. So the All uh, Kerala uh, Sadat Association, which seeks to unify the different Sayyid groups and lineages present in the state of Kerala. And here it's unlike the uh, Anjuman that I just mentioned. Here this organization is a, a Sunni organization, um, but that is, not, that is neither involved in, in politics and is also not uh, um, very active apart from ensuring networking and um, gatekeeping. So through this comparison of the three organizations and the three regions, I kind of propose uh, a typology or rather terms that could help us think about organizations or caste-based organizations among Muslims. And I distinguish the Anjuman, which would be a more uh, religiously oriented, politically quietist organization from the Jamiat uh, model, which would be a kind of organization uh, better geared towards making political demands. And it's true that most of the organizations established by, by occupational caste, by Pasmanda groups to voice demands seem to use the term Jamiat rather than, than Anjuman. But it's also, these are a bit ideal types. Um, and of course, not uh, something that you would find exactly in this way. Uh, and the article also uh, reflects on various forms of community preservations among, among Sayyids, suggesting that the associational form of community preservation is quite different from the tradition of Ilmul Nasab that, uh, that uh, Soheb uh, knows so well and already mentioned. Uh, so the tradition of uh, genea the gene genealogical tradition of, of Muslims that is mainly a, a written uh, tradition. Finally, I should say that overall for the, for the whole special issue, uh, many of the contributors are also very young scholars. Uh, many of them are PhD students, and it's really also a matter of, of great pride for us to, um, to be able to bring these, um, these papers together and to bring uh, new empirical material to the reflection of, on Muslim caste. As we conclude our conversation, I just wonder now that the special issue is out, have you received any feedback on it yet from other colleagues or are there any dimensions of this topic that you would like to focus on moving forward? In terms of response, I guess uh, these things take time and thank you, Ben, for the opportunity of uh, this podcast, which again is a way to disseminate our research to a wider audience. Uh, in terms of future work, I think... Uh, as Julian pointed out, uh, we have several contributors who are uh, still doing their PhDs. So we look forward to their uh, dissertations coming up in the next few years, but also uh, their own book manuscripts, which will really make the field of Muslim caste uh, very vibrant and with renewed questions and interests. My own research, uh, uh, I'm trying to write uh, my book manuscript, which will focus on the Muslim occupational classes and their attempts at social mobility. It's framed around uh, the polemical debates on 
genealogies uh, that takes place in the Urdu public sphere. So I focus on groups such as the butchers, the weavers and musicians uh, and their attempts uh, at rewriting their community histories in Urdu, also trying to contextualize this uh, within changes in the colonial economy, in the meat, leather and hides industries, in the weaving industries. Uh, and uh, this will hopefully be a contribution to uh, the field of Muslim caste, but from a historical perspective of late colonial India, where I hope to move beyond these categories of nationalism and separatism that are often tied up uh, with the historiography of Muslims. Yes, I also have the ambition to write a, a book about Muslim caste politics and its um, significance as part of the Muslim response to social and political marginalization in, in independent India. One, one question that we may ask, it's a apparent paradox, perhaps, uh, is why Muslim caste-based demands emerge at a time where there seems to be increasing and extremely acute polarization between Hindus and Muslims in the public sphere in India and great social uh, marginalization of, of Muslims. Another uh, project is to try and compile um, anthology or a reader on, on Muslim caste that could then serve as a basis for future research. I think a lot of the references are out there and there are interesting syntheses, but it would, be, it would be great to have a collection of significant contributions to this uh, research field uh, put together as a, as a volume. This, this special issue is also, of course, a programmatic call in many ways. It's not, of course, we're not pretending to, to cover uh, Muslim caste associations as a whole. Uh, I think quite, it's quite obvious that uh, the contributions of the, of the special issue are um, really specific examples, very uh, localized dynamics of the way uh, Muslim caste politics actually play out. And so one of our hopes is also that then uh, scholars in the future would also build on our work to provide uh, more examples of uh, the way Muslims organize collectively on the basis of caste or on the basis of collective uh, biradri, zat, belonging in various contexts, not only in North India, which is mainly the focus of, of um, our special issue, but also in other contexts in South Asia and also beyond India. That seems like a good place to close. For listeners, again, the special collection entitled Caste, Politics, Minority Representation, and Social Mobility, The Associational Life of Muslim Caste in India, is now available in the journal Contemporary South Asia. Soheb, Julian, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I look forward to following your work moving forward. Thanks for coming on. Thank you so much, Ben. Thank you so much. That was Soheb Niazi and Julian Levesque. Thank you for listening to the channel. Please subscribe to receive all future episodes. This podcast is brought to you by the International Institute for Asian Studies, a globally oriented institution based at Leiden University in the Netherlands. 
we are dedicated to fostering an integrated, multidisciplinary understanding of Asia and beyond, and we would love for you to get involved. For more information on our conferences, webinars, publications, and fellowship program, please visit eas.asia. That's iias.asia. See you next time.